Some of you know that we have a couple dogs at home. Both of them are rescues. Lucy is our German shepherd. She is friendly, a little shy, can be a little skittish, smart, definitely still learning, medium stature, medium frame. I would say, though, in a scuffle, she could hold her own. No, no doubt about that. Gus, Gus is our other dog. Gus, what is Gus? Gus is Gus. Uh, Gus, we think, is part dachshund, part maybe chihuahua. Breeders will say that would be what you call a chihuini. Uh, Gus is very friendly. He is high energy, to, to say the least. Uh, he uh, equally smart, certainly, uh, probably training us more than we're training him, certainly learning. He is small. He is not medium. He is small. Lucy is somewhere around 60 pounds by now. Gus, soaking wet, is 12. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know that. And that's the way dogs are. That's just the mind of a dog. A dog doesn't think size. A dog thinks, I'm a dog. You're a dog. I'm a dog. And the thing is with Gus, what concerns me is that one of these days, that failure to consider his size and just think dog is going to get him into a world of hurt because he has no idea how small he is. And we make the same mistake in our own ways, not so much about physical size. That's, that's not where I'm going. Uh, but we, in terms of our abilities, in terms of our accomplishments, in terms of what we think we bring to the table, we can get ourselves into a world of hurt in that sense, in the sense that we think too much of ourselves, far, far too much of ourselves. And that's not just in causing issues as far as our relationships with one another and issues at work and play and families and all that, though certainly that, it also causes issues and trouble in our relationship with God, our thinking too much of ourselves. And Jesus, in his love for us, is setting us straight in this text. So if you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me now to Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. Now, that said, we're going to back it up. Uh, to where we, a little bit into where we were last week. So we're going to be studying mostly uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, but for the flow, uh, to get a sense of the context of everything that's going on here, we're going to back it up and start in 1927. Okay, so we're going to start in uh, Matthew 19, verse 27, read on through chapter 20, verse 16. Uh, exploring this parable, this, this story that Jesus tells to his followers then and now. Uh, then and now. So Matthew, if you're still looking for that, that's the first of the books of the New Testament. It's the first of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to start, like I said, Matthew 19, verse 27. Hear now the word of God. And Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, 
he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Let's pray together. Thank you for these stories, Jesus. You are the master storyteller. We ask that you would help us to hear, help us to put ourselves that day there in that setting, that time, in that moment, with the the same questions upon our own minds and and hearts. How is it that we have the standing that we do with you? If we are followers of Christ, if we are yours, if we would be numbered among your disciples, how is it that we could have such a standing, such a place, such a security with you? ask that you'd please, please, please help us to become increasingly settled in the depths of our being, down into our bones, how this could be, how this could be indeed. We pray in your name. Amen. I'll read to you a quote from a recent book by a gentleman by the name of Robert McKenzie. The title is, The First Thanksgiving. Appropriate, I think, for this upcoming week, also for where we're going over the next few minutes. There's much to admire about the company of plain Englishmen who disembarked from the Mayflower almost four centuries ago. They were men and women who exhibited enormous courage in the face of unspeakable hardship and loss. They loved their children, they loved the body of Christ, and they abandoned everything that was familiar to them to serve both. They have given us an invaluable Christian example of belief action, and endurance. But human frailty is part of the pilgrim story as well. They argued among themselves. They were frequently duped both by strangers and purported friends. They were ethnocentric and sometimes self-righteous. They struggled with their finances. They were frightened by wolves. They got lost in the woods. A key leader got caught in an Indian deer trap and dangled helplessly upside down. In years to come, they would have a hard time keeping a pastor 
and many of their number would move away in search of larger farms, prompting William Bradford to speak of the Plymouth Church as, quote, an ancient mother grown old and forsaken of her children. Their flaws may shock us, but it wouldn't have shocked the pilgrims. They seemed to glory in how God could use them, despite their weakness and sinfulness. One of their key leaders said, Our voyage hath been as full of crosses as ourselves have been of crookedness, but God can do much. Another leader said, How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning, and yet God preserved us. The best thing that you can carry into this Thanksgiving week is this. One, you are more weak and vulnerable than you ever dared to fear. Two, you are more loved in Christ than you ever dared to hope. And that takes us to our story, the story that Jesus is telling here. Context is vital. Chapter 20, of course, builds on what's just happened there in chapter 19. What's happened there in chapter 19? This dialogue between Jesus and this rich young man is recorded for us there, and we looked at that uh, last week and the week before. Uh, In that dialogue between Jesus and that young man, Jesus is pushing him, challenging him to face, to wrestle with, to deal with the idols of his heart, the pseudo-saviors, the pseudo-gods that he lived for and gave promise of place in his heart. That sets in motion a dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. And they are asking him some questions. They have some concerns. And Jesus, in turn, warns them. Warns them of of thinking too much of earthly wealth and their good works. Which then then leads to this verse, and you you may have picked up on this. This verse, they're in 1930 and 2016. They're nearly identical. If they serve as bookends to the story clearly showing us, however we interpret the story, we have to do so through the lens of those bookends and what Jesus is driving at there. And so we read in 1930, for instance, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And Jesus says that in the context because Peter is expressing concern. Wait, you're saying, in essence, ultimately it doesn't matter what we do, but we've done so much. Does that mean it's not going to count for anything? And Jesus responds to that by saying, Peter, Peter, I know your sacrifice, and I am pleased by your obedience, but you need to understand, I am beholden to none of that. I see your sacrifice, I see your obedience, but I am obligated by none of it. God is under no obligation to us. He owes us nothing. Nothing. We are absolutely dependent on His grace. We are absolutely, completely, utterly from ground up and ground down dependent on His grace, and we dare not lose sight of that. And that's what this story is about. Our utter dependence on His grace and the utter need we have to never lose sight of that. That's why he's telling us this story. And he presses that in upon us all the more so when you think about the three basic points that he is making that you can see reflected in the three characters 
or sets of characters, perhaps we could say, in the story. The first is the master, and the second are the later workers, and then the third are the early workers. Now, I know in your outline there in your bulletin, points two and three are flipped, and that's because I flipped them after it went to print. So you're just going to have to do something there as you're taking notes. But the reason that that, that order is important is because Jesus is, is bu- it's building an emphasis. The emphasis here is, yes, we need to talk about the master and what that shows us. We need to consider the, the late servants and what that shows us. But the point really is driven by looking at the, the early servants. The early servants. And so that's, we build one and then two and then three. Let's look at this in turn. The master, who is he? What do we learn there? Well, given that he's the one authority figure in the story, he's the master, he's the owner of the vineyard, clearly, clearly he stands for the Lord himself. And what Jesus is showing us through him and through that figure is that he wants us to understand that before him in his highs, all of his followers, all of his people are on equal ground and all receive the same reward, ultimately. Verse 16, it comes out there. So the last, this is what the second of the book ends, so the last will be first and the first last. Now this imagery that Jesus is using here would certainly have been very familiar to his hearers there, easily so. This is harvest time, that's what he's alluding to. It's grapes, grapes are well, certainly in ancient Israel were one of the most important crops that were grown in that part of the world. It's harvest season, it's time to bring them in. To do that, you needed an inflated number of workers, much more, many, so, many more so than you normally did. So it was common for an owner of a vineyard to go out into the populace and hire some temporary workers. Go out into the marketplace, which is what we see this man does. The marketplace being a center place of the village where all kinds of business transactions were take, would take place, including the hiring of such temporary workers. And we see that he goes. He has to if he's going to you know, reap this harvest. In fact, we see that he goes repeatedly, several times over the course of the day. Now, we're not told exactly why, and we really would do well in terms of understanding this story not to try and read too much into that. But we do know certainly there had to be some urgency. If the harvest is going to be brought in, workers are going to have to be brought in as well. Okay, so that's the imagery. What's the lesson? The vineyard. The vineyard was an image oftentimes used in Old Testament Israel in the Old Testament, rather. Well, it was an image of Israel, sorry, in the Old Testament. The vineyard typically stood for the people of Israel themselves. The the owner of the vineyard, the master of the house, this was oftentimes, and certainly is the case here, an image for God. What you see going on here is something very much similar to that, in that the vineyard in this case represents the kingdom and the expansion of the kingdom in this world. The workers in the vineyard represent his people, God's people, his followers. And he's making it very clear, again, I alluded to this already, that all in his, his, his eyes are equal on the same footing, with the same standing. They're receiving this, and, and ultimately the same reward. He plays no favorites. None will be slighted. None will be left behind. None will be left out. That's the vital thing that we see here with the image of the master, just giving him his due and what he represents, and Jesus wants us to understand here, the image of the master, the owner. Some of you may know that 
In many schools, public and private, dodgeball has been eliminated from recess activities. Uh, you know, that, that big red ball flying around the, the, the room and, or the, the blacktop or whatever. It, because of so many cases where kids have gotten physically hurt, school administrators have said it's just time to, you know, no more. No more. I would argue that if you want to rule off out dodgeball, there's a better reason to do it than concern for physical injury, emotional injury. You know what happens at the start of every one of those dodgeball games? Captains are picked arbitrarily, typically by the teacher. And then who do they pick to be on their team? It's always the same ones that are picked first, the popular ones, the smarter ones, the athletic ones, the ones that can help. It's always the same ones that are picked first, and it's always this poor, besotten remainder that are picked last. And Jesus is showing us here, I don't work like that. That's not the way I do things. I do not work according to the world's standards. He never has, and he never will. Now, that should be of tremendous encouragement and comfort to us here this morning, knowing that that is not the way that he works, playing favorites in that sense, gauging us according to the world's uh, economics of worthiness. It should be of tremendous encouragement of comfort, but it should also be something else. It should also be a challenge to us. If we, in fact, are his followers, if we, in fact, are his people, if we, in fact, are following him, we have to live like that. We have to treat others in the same way he treats us. Without all the preferential treatment, without all the favoritism, without gauging what can you give me and what are you worth to me and all that sort of foolishness. Jesus is making very clear here we are absolutely dependent upon God's grace. We dare not lose sight of that. That's the first point, just thinking about the master, what he has to teach us here, the the owner of the vineyard. But then that takes us to the second point, the late workers, the 11th hour crew shows up at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. You think in terms of this great contrast between what they deserve and what they receive, just in terms of how we typically approach these kinds of, of, of stories and equations, we naturally assume that they deserve so little, and yet they receive so much. They receive so, so very much. Let's look at it. Again, just not rehashing the entire story, but just the summary towards the end, picking up uh, halfway through verse 14, and listen to what Jesus is saying. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? All right, let's talk about the imagery. What what did they deserve? Let's think about it. Let's drill down there. What did they deserve? Now, let's not, again, we want to be careful about exploring details that that are extraneous and they're they're, they're not just rabbit trails, but they're dead ends, not meant to go there. So we don't need to be thinking about why it was that they started working so late. There's no hint in the text whatsoever about a lack of work skills or laziness. Rather, if you want to read into some things, 
Think about the fact that they hung in there at the marketplace throughout the day looking for work. And they started immediately after they were hired. But the problem is when they were hired. Hired at the 11th hour. So what then are they due? What do they, strictly speaking, what do they deserve? 12 hours, they work one hour. They are, they are due, they deserve one-twelfth's day of pay. That's what they deserve. That's what they have coming to them. That's what they've earned. That's what they've merited. That's what they deserve. What do they receive? Not a fraction of a day's pay, but a full day's pay, a denarius. That's what that was. A day's pay for a common laborer or a soldier. It's what it was. And they receive far more than just a fraction of what they'd worked for. They receive the, they receive the full day. Now, this is where, this is where Jesus blows up our categories. Because thus far, it's been a very familiar sort of picture. You know, the harvest and get, going out in the marketplace and getting some more workers and, and some coming in over the court, more coming in as increasingly as the day goes by. But when it comes time to pay them, now we're in very unfamiliar territory. Uh, don't misunderstand. Jesus' point here is not to teach us about labor and management relationships. This is about the kingdom, his rule, his reign in this world. And the lesson behind the imagery, the lesson behind the imagery is the goodness of God to his people. The goodness of God to his people, of which we all, every one of us here this morning, desperately need to be reminded of. The goodness of God to his people. First, there's just the simple fact of his goodness, that it's there, that it's real, that he is so generous, so generous, not giving us what we have worked for, but what we need. What did those men need? A full day's pay. He gives us exactly what we need. Seeing that, knowing that far better than we ever will. He gives us always what we need. His generosity, but not just that. His graciousness to us in that not, do, not only does he give us what we need, but he doesn't give us what we deserve. This is the goodness of God we're talking about here. Mind-blowing, soul-stirring, life-orienting, the goodness of God. And what is it grounded in? We see something of that here as well. It can't be anything in the worker. It has nothing to do with any merit or deserving or something inherent with us. It's all in Him. He, it's, his goodness is part of His character. It's, it's who he is, and so he delights to be so generous and so gracious with us, giving us what we need and withholding what we deserve. Such is his great, beautiful, abundant goodness. That's what we learn here in this image of the later workers. Some of you may know the song Amazing Grace, which we're going to sing later here in a bit, was written by a gentleman by the name of John Newton. Newton was a pastor when he wrote those words many, many years ago, late 1700s. But what you may not know is that that was not Newton's uh, first career. 
His earlier career path was as a slave trader. In fact, he was the captain of a slave ship. And he was, for the rest of his life, he, he mourned his past, the evil and injustice multiplied over not dozens but hundreds, if not thousands of cases. He mourned that, and therein he marveled all the more at how amazing God's grace is. There's a line from one of his letters. He was a prolific writer in, in many ways. Um, it's oftentimes quoted. It's worth quoting here. It's his own words. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Oh, that we would remember those two things ourselves today. That we would know truly of ourselves that we are great sinners. And that's okay, because Christ is a great Savior. Oh, that we would know those things and know them deeply. The goodness of God. His generosity to us. His grace poured out upon us. No few of us, I don't doubt this for a minute, no few of us in this room right now can identify with these late workers. We know what it is to have come in at the 11th hour. We came to faith late in life. You look back over your, your, your days, however many you've had on this earth now, and you're grieved, you're mourned, you're perhaps even weep over extended periods of your life that were wasted in waywardness. And sometimes you lie awake at night and you wonder, do I have anything to show for it? friend, <laughs> we are absolutely dependent on God's grace. His grace. It's all you have and it's all you need. We are absolutely dependent upon His grace. We dare not lose sight of that. That is for the 11th hour worker. That good news. Take heart. Take heart. That said, there's another set of workers. And this really is the main point of the three. You know, so put that in bold uh, among the one, the two, and the three. Not, not so much the early workers, excuse me, not so much the late workers, but the early workers. Uh, it, this is a story not so much of contrast, but of one thing leading to another. You, you think in terms of, well, they seem to, by earthly equations and standards, they seem to have deserved so much, and yet they receive the same thing. And the assurance that they are given is there will be no injustice. That's what they hear. There will be no injustice. 
Look again at the, at the text, uh, starting in verse 13. Jesus speaking to one of these men, one of the, they were, well, the, the master speaking to one of the representatives of the, the men uh, in this early group of workers. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Now, again, let's think about the imagery here for just a minute. Just put yourself in, in their shoes out there in that field. What's their experience been, right? They have been there from the start of the day. From the very beginning, when the works began, that's where they were, working, sweating, laboring. Little wonder they say that they have borne the burden of the work and the, and the heat of the day. They have throughout the day, from the start to, to the finish. And they have watched, oh, by the way, these stragglers, coming in at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock. They've watched them, these stragglers, good-for-nothings. Where were you? We were here at 6 a.m. They've watched it. They've seen it. Ah, but they've seen something else. They've seen when the master started, well, the foreman started paying them. And it's interesting. It's clearly some intentionality here, the order in which they're paid to make a point. They don't start with those who showed up first. They start with those who showed up last. And so, of course, the, these men these, who had been there from the start are assuming. You, you could feel what they're feeling. You can't help it. So how we're wired. You feel what they're feeling. Oh, my goodness. Well, I know, I know. He said, he said he would pay us a denarius. But, oh, my goodness, we've been here so long, and look what they got. So surely, surely there's, there's a bonus in here for us. It's got to be. It's got to be what's coming. So their hopes are rising, expectations soaring. You can feel it. And the consternation that then comes, and that's anything but what happens. The lesson in all this imagery, again, the context is vital. This whole story is told as an answer to a question, right? Remember going back? The disciples are engaging with Jesus, and Jesus says to them, it's going back in chapter 19, he says, your standing is secured in no way by what you do. Your standing with me has nothing to do with what you do. To which Peter, in his, his consternation, says, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, wait a minute. What do you mean it has nothing to do with what we do? Because we've done so much. To which then Jesus responds with this story and the warning that comes. And we'll go back to 1929. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Do you know that's what these men had done? He's not speaking hypothetically. That's what they've done. Keep going. Verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now to the other bookend at the end of the story, verse 15. Again, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is a warning. This is, there's no encouragement here. It was comfort and encouragement to the late workers. It is a warning given to the early workers and those who would have that sort of hearts 
approach and that sort of mentality towards the master and the other workers and regarding themselves. The danger, the warning being, the danger of thinking way too much about what we've done and way too little about who ostensibly we've done it for. You see the contrast? Spending way too much thinking about what I've done and therein what we think we're due, and way too little about ostensibly who it was for. You may see this in a, in a uh, footnote at the bottom of, depending on what translation you have, there in verse 15, it, it can actually be translated, is your eye bad because I am good? Or is your eye, another way of putting it is, is your eye evil because I am generous? Meaning, are you so blind? Are you so blind by your self-interest that you have no compassion for anyone else? And the answer is... Yes. Yes. This is the image of the early worker and the warning that Jesus is giving us. He's speaking to the disciples, helping them to see without, without just coming out and saying it, you have an early worker mentality. And he is warning them, and he is warning us, lest we fall into the same trap. Let me take you back to the pilgrims again. The first winter at Plymouth, 1620 to 1621. Absolutely brutal. Let me read you some numbers. Within weeks, 52 of the 102 passengers, get this, 52 of the 102 who reached Cape Cod were dead including 14 of 26 heads of families and the colony's newly elected governor. All but four families lost at least, at least one member. Of the 18 married couples who had sailed from England, only three had survived intact. Happy Thanksgiving. What happened? What happened? It was a perfect storm. They had not planned to land at Plymouth. That's for, for starters. They had planned to, to form their own colony. They had planned to land further south at an established colony. They had little to no tools. They had no oxen or horses to build anything. Everything had to be done by hand. Early reports had indicated, and they were deeply flawed, that the weather was something comparable to France and Spain. So they were not equipped when it came to clothing. And they're there in November, December, January, in a very, very cold, cold winter in New England. They would spend, so they're poor, poorly clothed, poorly outfitted. They're working, trying to build these shelters, of which, you know, they began with none, building these shelters in the snow, having to walk again and again and again back to the Mayflower through several hundred feet, the length, several hundred feet where the, the ship was docked, Doc, what's the word? Moored? Thank you. Anchored. I know nothing. Uh, anchored in, in hip-deep or knee-deep icy water. And then where do they spend the night? Lying on icy ground in the open air. What do you think happened? Pneumonia sets in. 
takes hold and takes its toll. And that's how you end up with this ugly, brutal disaster. So you can trace, the point is you can trace this disaster to its causes. You can trace the disaster of our hearts to its causes too. Our impatience with one another. Our lovelessness towards those who do not know Jesus. Our continuing ongoing bouts with bitterness and envy and anger and discontentment. The fact that we have little to no interest in spending much time at all in prayer or reading our Bibles. That's the heart's disaster. And you know what the cause of that is? Ultimately, we think too much of ourselves. We think too much of ourselves and our obedience. We have an inflated view of ourselves. We think, well, too little, too much about what we think we've done and too little about a, the one ostensibly that whom we've done it for. And I said the message to the late worker, the 11th hour worker, if that's where you are, Jesus' word to you this morning is take heart. Take heart. But to the early worker, the one who feels himself or herself to borne the burden of the day and the heat of the day through, from the beginning of the day, his word to you is not so much take heart, but take heed. Take heed. Because again, we are absolutely dependent on God's grace. And we dare not lose sight of that. You know, um, most friendships, most friendships do not end with a bang, but with a whimper. You ever thought about that? You think back over your life, unless you're just a combative, you know, something. Most of your friendships don't end with a bang, but with a whimper. I know there are exceptions to that. I got it. You know, there's sometimes where it's just you draw a line, you have to say enough is enough, cut and dry. You know, I know we've, it's been great. We've had a good run, great history together, but you've betrayed my trust. We're done. Yet, yeah, I got it. That happens. But that's not usually what happens. Usually what happens is it doesn't come to an end like a supernova, but just like a slow setting sun. Think back to your high school friends, maybe those who went to college, your, your college friends, the ones that you couldn't imagine in those days to live without, right? Now, where are you? Most of us, these many years later. Change happens. Time happens. Moves happen. Marriages, children, stuff, life. Now you're doing well to be able to find them on Facebook. Why am I bringing this up? Most friendships do not end with a bang, but with a whimper. And what Jesus is warning us here is, beware. Because that's exactly what can happen in your love for me. It's exactly what can happen in your love for me. Again, thinking too much about what you think you've done and too little about who ostensibly you did it for.
And so the degree to which that we cherish him and take our delight in him fades as our pride swells. That's why Jesus tells us this story. I know it's a hard story. If it feels hard, you're hearing it. It's intended to have a sharp edge. And it's out of love that he speaks this way to us. May we hear. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the power of story. And most especially, we thank you for the power of your stories, how you hook us in. You, you, you cultivate an ear, and then you provoke something. And here we see that, oh, how we may be treated differently in this life, each of us, never, never will we be treated unjustly. And we all need to be reminded of that. We all need to be reminded and encouraged regarding your generosity and your graciousness. And oh, would you assure our hearts of that this morning and convict us of the need to be so generous and gracious towards one another. Oh, would you strengthen our hearts and would you weaken our pride. We've read this already. We sung of this already, that we have nothing to boast of in our, ourselves. Yet we have every hope, every reason to hope, found in you. We thank you for this story. Would you help us to take it to heart? We pray in your name.